We don't indulge because we're gluttons. We don't indulge God because we just want all the fatty foods. We indulge, Lord, because you have indulged in us. You've granted us as your people the blood of your Son. And we thank you. Father, I pray tonight as we remember some things that this time of year brings to our mind, that you would bless us, Father, that you would give us understanding, uh, that you would fill our hearts with encouragement and joy. Help us, Father, to honor you in our celebrating, to honor you in our joy with one another. Father, all glory is yours, and may Christ be exalted. Amen. Amen. You know, it's been it's been a different kind of year for us as a church. You know, and the people that we have here tonight are, are the people that were here before Danny left. And just for me personally, and I know probably for Jeremy and Jason too, and, and you guys, um, but for me personally, definitely, uh, it makes it kind of heavy. You know, it makes it kind of heavy to know that we've been almost a year now uh, just kind of on our own, and I don't know a better way to put it. I don't know a different way to put it. You know, we've been through some changes. Uh, we've, we've seen a lot of, a lot of faces, uh, especially in the past few months, come in and leave out and and when we've seen you know friends that we've we had for years uh depart some of them without saying a word and so there's been there's been some hurt if i can be honest but there's also been this joy that's come from having to depend on god having to pray and ask truly ask God, is this what you want us to do as a people? Because when it was just three families gathering here after about two months without Danny, you know, we really didn't know. We didn't know. And so the prayer was, Lord, if, if you want it to continue, you're going to have to show us. You're going to have to grow. You're going to have to to help us see that we're doing the right thing. And praise God, he's answered our prayers in more ways than one. And this is good. This is good. But it brings me to tonight. Because tonight will be just a little bit different than we're used to for the candlelight service. Um, tonight, I'm, I'm personally going to do something that I wouldn't normally do, uh, say, for like a Sunday morning service. I'm going to give you a bit of a personal story. And I'm not going to just try to exposit Scripture. In fact, I'm gonna I'm gonna read a lengthy quotation from a book that I thoroughly enjoy about Christmas. But I do it because I want us all to understand where we're at and the vision that we've taken on. The things that have changed in my heart and hopefully will change in y'all's hearts over time. You know, I want you to see it. I want you to grasp it. I want you to understand it. I want you to be able to distinguish in your mind what it is that's different now 
from before. And so with that said, I just want to, I want to, I want to, I want to scoot back a few years to, um, one or two years after me and Whitney got married and, uh, thinking about this time of year, thinking about Christmas, right? Uh, I had become the type of person with Christmas that, uh, you know, I would go to the Christmas parties. I would, I would, I wouldn't have a problem going to people's houses, you know, they had Christmas trees up and lights and all this kind of stuff. But for like, for me personally, within my own small little family, I had kind of made up my mind that that was a bunch of just stuff. It was all extra stuff and I didn't need it. I didn't want it. I remember me and Whitney would actually uh, get into arguments about this kind of thing. You know, I, I remember, I remember distinctly having an argument about these, these little, uh, like rope light things that would go in the windows. There were like two of them that she had gotten. And, you know, she just wanted to put them in the window. That was going to be like it, you know? And I remember being like, I don't want that. Oh, we got a light at the house. That's stupid. You know? And uh, I remember having discussions about why we shouldn't have Christmas trees. You know, why we shouldn't do this and that and all this kind of stuff. All the while going to, you know, the, the, the family parties and, you know, acting like I thought everything was just fine. <clears throat> but I can remember a moment when things really started to change in my mind. And I can remember a few scriptures that started to come into my mind over and over and over again. And if we just look at them, they don't seem like they're very related to Christmas. They don't seem like they're very related to the birth of Christ. One of the scriptures that challenged my mind that started to change my perspective, my, my worldview, in fact, was in Matthew 28. And this is an extremely familiar passage. We've gone over it numerous, numerous times, even this year. Matthew 28, 18, it says, And Jesus uh, came up and spoke to them, saying, and this is at the ascension, He says, All authority, all authority has been given to me in heaven and on earth. You know, we always read the next couple of verses and it says, uh, go therefore and make disciples of all the nations and teach them to obey everything that I've commanded you and baptize them and all this stuff. And this is, you know, this is the great commission passage. This is the passage where we go and we're like, this is why we go evangelize. This is why we go and we, and we, we preach the gospel to the people we work with. And this is why we share the gospel with the people that we're around. And this is why we as a church should have a focus and outreach somewhere but I tell you what really started to hit me super, super, super heavy was that first part. It says, all authority has been given to me in heaven and on earth. You see, this time of year, we like to talk about Jesus being the light of the world. The light of the world. And we emphasize this light. But a lot of people, not all, a lot of people have a conception about this Jesus being the light of the world, and it's almost Gnostic. You see, the Gnostics opposed the early church. The Gnostics taught that the material world was evil. They taught that this creation, the things that you can touch and taste and see and feel, were all created by this evil, corrupt God. 
And so everything that he actually made was evil and corrupt. And the only way that you could come close to the true God and the way that they saw Christ was to divorce yourself from everything material. And so it was only the spiritual things that mattered. And in fact, for them, it was secret knowledge that mattered. I can know something about God. I can know secrets about Jesus. Because I have seen the light. And it's told me that everything in this world is evil and dank and corrupt. And so a lot of Christians see this world as fit to be burned up. They see this world that we, that we stand in, that we live in, that we smell in, that we taste in, that we touch in, that we love in. They see it as being fit to be burned up. But Christ came as the light of the world. You see, when we only understand that Jesus brings us salvation through faith alone, we've taken some steps in the right direction, but we haven't grasped the fullness. And so in my mind, all the materialism about Christmas that I hated, I realized was utterly Gnostic. It was utterly Gnostic because I found myself hating the good things that God had made. And I don't want you to misunderstand me. I, I really don't want you to misunderstand me. What was changing about my worldview, what was changing about the way that I thought, was that I started to see the world not as something that ought to and is going to be burned up, but as something that will be redeemed. When John writes in his gospel, chapter 3, for God so loved the world, he wasn't just talking about the people. When Christ was speaking with Nicodemus and he said, for God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. He wasn't just talking about people. When God created the world, he looked at it and said, this is good. This is good. And so what I started to realize was that my understanding about the spiritual salvation that Christ brings had been divorced from the understanding that Christ saves everything else. He says, all authority, all authority has been given to me in heaven and on earth. Go, therefore, and make disciples of all the nations. Okay, so Christ has all authority in heaven and on earth. Jesus taught God loves the world. And then Christ commands, go and baptize the nation. 
Nations are filled with people. But nations mean more than people. Nations mean law. Nations mean culture. And so another scripture that started to burn me, started to really, really just get at me, and we've been over this one a bunch of times too. Psalm 2. Why are the nations in an uproar and the peoples devising a vain thing? The kings of the earth take their stand and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against his anointed, saying, Let us tear their fetters apart and cast away their cords from us. He who sits in the heavens laughs. The Lord scoffs at them. Then he will speak to them in his anger and terrify them in his fury, saying, But as for me, I have installed my king upon Zion, my holy mountain. I will surely tell of the decree of the Lord. He said to me, You are my son. Today I have begotten you. Ask of me, ask of me, and I will surely give the nations as your inheritance and the very ends of the earth as your possession. And you shall break them with a rod of iron. You shall shatter them like earthenware. God is giving a picture of these rulers, these kings, coming in council together, saying, let's, let's throw off the fetters of the Lord. Let's throw off the chains that He binds us with. And God's response is to laugh in their face and not to say, I'm going to burn you all up. But look at what He says. Now, therefore, O kings, show discernment. Take warning, O judges of the earth. Worship the Lord with reverence. And rejoice with trembling. Do homage to the Son that He not become angry and you perish in the way. For His wrath may soon be kindled. How blessed are all who take refuge in Him. My brain started to break in a glorious way because I realized. Every square inch of this earth belongs to Christ. It is His possession. It is His by right. And so what do we believe? about Christ being the light of the world. Do we think that it's just the light of the knowledge of His salvation? Or do we think that even the nations can be redeemed? Do we think of this time of year as a time when we celebrate a king who would be born, whose people would, would grow and then suffer to the point of almost dying. 
And then he comes back to rescue us. Or do we believe what the scripture says? That all authority in heaven and on earth belongs to him. And that him being the voice of God that spoke and created every particle. That he looked at it and said it was good. That that good thing that he created will now be rolled up and thrown away like a piece of garbage. It's his good creation. It's his good world matter to him. Brothers and sisters, I'm going to expound on this tomorrow. But I say that this world matters to him very much. I see it throughout the word. I see that God has promised a kingdom that will never cease to increase. Do I believe what I see in the scriptures? Do I believe it? I remember the moment when I told myself, I do believe that. I really do. I was standing behind my table at work. I was listening to a podcast and they were talking about some of these things. And I had a smile that couldn't go away. Because I realized, I realized, I never believed Jesus was truly king. Only that someday he was going to be. And it stirred me to the point that just two weeks ago, instead of me and my wife arguing about whether to put a little silhouette candle in the window, we legitimately almost, we didn't get there, we almost argued about having to get a fake tree instead of a real one. Because the Christmas season, right? It's, it's, it's full of all kinds of trappings, even for Christians. It's full of all kinds of materialism, even for Christians. But when we can alter our worldview, when we can understand what the Scripture says about material, when we can understand what the Scripture says about who Christ is, then our Christian culture has decided to make this entire month about the birth of our King. How could I not celebrate? How could I not sing? So, next thing we're going to do is what we've always done. Candlelight services. We're going to light candles. The symbolism, the representation here. When we light this single lone candle sitting on the table, for us it represents Christ. 
It represents his truth, his authority, his kingship, his gospel. And so what you're going to do is you're going to come forward in a moment. You're going to take a candle out of the bin. And you're going to use our symbolic light of Christ to light your candle, representing true faith. <clears throat> representing the light of Christ coming in to your body into your life, into your heart, into your mind. And then I'm going to have a couple more things to say about it. So, I want to go ahead and dim some lights after we get this one lone candle lit. And, uh, you know, we certainly don't want to be tripping over each other or anything like that. But we're going to turn, we're going to turn the lights down real low, off if we're able, so that we can see the effect of this light. So, a lot of times, for candlelight services, we talk about how Christ is the world, or excuse me, the light of the world, and how from this, this one light, how dark it was before, with the one single light burning and how, how bright it is now that I can actually see everyone's face without any of the lights on. You know, this is a glorious truth. This is a good representation of the light that Christ brings into the world. But I, I want you guys to notice something else. So as we lit our candles, we can see that there are Many lights. Many lights. But unlike our lights, the light that Christ gives out won't ever go out. So if we let these candles burn for long enough, they're going to completely melt, and then the flame is going to extinguish itself. Or in a few minutes, you're going to blow it out, and the light's going to be gone. But what I want you to see, and there was something really key that happened right over here with you, Matt, a second ago, because as, uh, as, as one of the kids was walking by, the, the light had gone out, and you reached over and you were like, here, take some light, and you relit the candle. This is what the light of Christ does. It grows, and grows, and grows, and never ceases to grow because everywhere that his light touches belongs to him already. It belongs to him already. And what he is propagating in every dark corner of the earth where the gospel has not been preached is faith and a kingdom which will not end. What do we think of the kingdom of Christ? Do we often imagine to ourselves, especially given the circumstances of our nation, do we often imagine to ourselves that all these lights are just going out, 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 
over and over again until nothing's going to be left? No. It belongs to Christ. He's the one that gives out the So, to finish up, we'll get one of you fellas to turn these lights back up, and we'll blow out our candles, that way the wax doesn't get too melty, and all of our pretty lights will go away. I'm going to leave this one burning on the table, though. Okay. So, let's all extinguish our lights. I told you I'm going to read something. And the reason I want to read this, it drives home, I hope, in, in probably a more eloquent way, what I was talking about this evening. Christ is the light of the world not just the light of his people. Christ owns everything. It all belongs to him. Uh, this is from a book called God Rest You Mary by a pastor named Douglas Wilson. And what I'm going to read is actually a sermon that he preached. Um, don't worry, it's not going to be long. Not super long anyway. Uh, but... Again, just, just catch catch the point here. Catch the point. And so this opening is actually the opening chapter of this book, and it's called To Gain His Everlasting Hall. Bethlehem was the opening gambit in the last campaign of a long war. Many centuries after our father Adam had first plunged our, plunged our race into the insanity of sin, God finally made his opening move. Jesus Christ, born of a woman, born under law, was born to fulfill every one of the numerous promises that God had made during our long night. At the beginning of our world, scarcely had our race fallen into sin and darkness, but our Father God swore that the seed of the woman would have vengeance upon the serpent, promising us a glorious deliverance. And so for long ages, the faithful looked ahead to that undefined day, figuring, studying, mentally groping, but fundamentally trusting. What form would the dragon slayer take? What form would the serpent worm have in the day when his head was finally crushed? The servants of God, earthly and celestial both, were well aware of the great obstacles, but knew at the same time that the wisdom of God was far greater than any obstacle. But although they knew this, the campaign plans were still highly classified. The Apostle Peter describes it in this way of which salvation the prophets have inquired and searched diligently, who prophesied of the grace that should come unto you, searching what or what manner of time the Spirit of Christ, which was in them, did signify, when it testified beforehand the sufferings of Christ and the glory that should follow, unto whom it was revealed, that not unto themselves, but unto us, they did minister the things which are now reported unto you by them that have preached the gospel unto you with the Holy Ghost sent down from heaven, which things the angels desire to look into. It is always 
been like this. Our good God, our overflowing God, our God of yes and amen has always been able to promise far more than we are able to believe. And I'm not here speaking of unbelief or of hard hearts, which is another problem. I am speaking here of a true and sincere faith, a God-given faith, but one which is still finite and which God loves, loves to bury under an avalanche of promises. We serve and worship the God who overwhelms, who delights to overwhelm. At his right hand are pleasures forevermore, a cascading waterfall of infinite pleasures with no top, no bottom, no back, no front, and no sides. Nothing but infinite pleasure in motion, and every one of those pleasures is attached to his promises. What does the Apostle Paul tell us about the salvation that this God would introduce into our history, into our story? Howbeit we speak wisdom among them that are perfect, yet not the wisdom of this world, nor of the princes of this world that come to naught. But we speak the wisdom of God in a mystery, even the hidden wisdom which God ordained before the world unto our glory, which none of the princes of this world knew. For if they had known it, they would not have crucified the Lord of glory. But as it is written, eye hath not seen, ear hath not heard, neither have entered into the heart of man the things which God hath prepared for them that love him. But God hath revealed them unto us by his Spirit, for the Spirit searches all things, yea, the deep things of God. For what man knoweth the things of man, save the Spirit of man which is in him? Even so the things of God knoweth no man, but the Spirit of God. And so because these promises stagger us, we have to develop a workaround, something to keep us from feeling the crushing weight of God's promised goodness to our world. That workaround consists of pushing the fulfillment of his promises out past the day of resurrection, safely storing them all in a time when we are allowed not to think about it. But this passage from Paul is not talking about the eternal state. It has nothing to do with the eternal state. He lived in the third chapter, we live in the tenth chapter, and he was talking about the fifteenth chapter. He was not talking about the next book the one which we shall all read in the resurrection. These are promises concerning our future history. And so it is always thus. Our poets, our poets and our seers see more than we do. They write poems and hymns. They write carols that are uninspired, but are prophetic utterances nonetheless. Just as Isaiah spoke far beyond what he could grasp, so also did Wesley. Just as the Jews memorized and chanted the words of Isaiah, words that were beyond their grasp, so also we have memorized carols that speak of the depth of glory that is coming, and we are always singing out of our depth. We are not singing about what will happen after the resurrection. We sing about the years to come here in our midst. We are singing about promises and blessings that will overtake our children's children. And I do not say this by way of chiding or blame. As we have noted, the Apostle Paul said that it was designed this way. Eye has not seen and ear has not heard what God has prepared for those who love him. Do you love him? Then brace yourself and sing to a world that needs to brace itself. When we were in desperate straits, Christ came to ransom captive Israel and to disperse the gloomy clouds of night. 
In our insolence, we were doomed by law to endless woe and were necessarily and justly consigned to the dreadful gulf below. But this darkness we had created was invaded by the heavenly host. Rank on rank, the host of heaven spreads its vanguard on its way. And the night above the shepherds lit up as though a lightning bolt had refused to go out, had refused to stop shining. The road was weary, but now we may urge others to rest beside the weary road and hear the angels sing. We needed this salvation just as he gave it. O Savior, King of glory, who dost our weakness know? The God who knew our frame timed it perfectly. And so the ache was healed. In Bethlehem and Israel, this blessed babe was born. This was Israel's strength and consolation. He was the dear desire of every nation. Now he shines the long expected and the glory stream from heaven afar. All creation is summoned to rejoice. He is the high-born king of ages. Word of the Father, now in flesh appearing, nothing whatever is excluded. We invite all that grows beneath the shining, the shining of the moon and the burning sun to join in our praise. This gospel is proclaimed, and the antiphon is sung by the mountains in reply. All of it bursts forth. Both heaven and nature sing. This is right and fitting. Because he comes to make his blessings flow as far as the curse is found. All cursed things may sing this blessing. The nations are gathered before him. On behalf of those nations, he is risen with healing in his wings. And so we are summoned. We are. <clears throat> and so we summon all the nations to join us. Joyful all ye nations rise. Join the triumph of the skies. Africa, come. We urge the Far East not to tarry. South America, behold your Lord. And we beseech our own nations to repent our apostasies and turn back to him again. This is not optional. The poets have commanded it. He makes the nations prove the glories of his righteousness. The saints of God are therefore insistent. Powers, dominions, bow before him as we declare honor, glory, and dominion, and eternal victory. We lean into the future expectantly, looking forward to the time when the ever-circling years comes round the ages of gold. With the dawn of redeeming grace, what is the only possible response? We gather to him and chant with high thanksgiving. And however high the thanksgiving is, the object of our praise is higher still. Come peasant, king, to own him. We praise him and he calls us, calls to one, uh, calls to you, calls you one and calls you all to gain his everlasting hall. And in the skies above that everlasting hall, the ascending hymns fly up, fill up the endless day. Indeed, nor, nor eye hath seen, nor ear hath yet attained to hear what is ours. O come, let us adore him, Christ the Lord. Amen and amen in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. Amen again. Let's pray. Almighty God, I thank you for your word. I thank you for your glorious promises that overwhelm us. 
I thank you, Father, that in your wisdom, in your wisdom, Lord, we aren't able to grasp the greatness of your promises. But you deign to give us glimpses of these glories. Help us to believe your promises, God. Help us to live in light of your promises and to expect your promises. O Lord, call the nations unto yourself. Call the nations unto yourself, God. And help us to see it as inevitable. Amen. So now we're going to sing to a world that needs singing. <laughs>